Welcome to Off-Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is singer, songwriter, activist, Holly Near. We are gentle and people, and we are singing, singing for our lives. Holly has had a legendary performing career spanning over 50 years that has taken her from Hollywood to Broadway to marches and rallies and concert halls all over the world. One of the most powerful, consistent, and outspoken singer-songwriters of our time, her music elevates spirits and inspires activism. In 1972, Holly was one of the first women to create an independent record company, Redwood Records, paving the way for women like Ani DeFranco and many others. Throughout her career, Holly has worked with a wide array of musicians, including Pete Seeger, Ronnie Gilbert, Mercedes Sosa, Bernice Johnson-Regan, Bonnie Raitt, Jackson Brown, Joan Baez, Harry Belafonte, and so many others. Holly has been widely recognized both for her music and for her work for social change, including honors from the ACLU, the National Lawyers Guild, the National Organization for Women, and the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. She was also named Ms. Magazine Woman of the Year and received the Legends of Women's Music Award. An outspoken advocate for the LGBTQ community, she was one of the first celebrities to openly discuss her sexual orientation during a pioneering 1976 interview with People magazine. Imagine my surprise. I love that I found you, but I ache all over wanting to know your every dream. She's released 29 albums, and she was the subject of the 2019 documentary, Singing for Our Lives. It's been said of Holly's music by so many who work for peace and justice that her songs are our anthems. We will have peace. We will because we must. We must because we cherish It's my great pleasure to welcome her today. Holly Neer, welcome to Off Leash Arts. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I first heard your music when I was in high school. Oh, my. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was Lawrence, Kansas around 1984. And it was one of those moments that was so powerful. I remember everything about it. I was in a basement room at my friend Jackie's house, and she said, listen to this. And she put on the song Foolish Notion. Why do we kill people? about it spoke to me so deeply that it was personal it was political and the music and so that that was it and i i was hooked well so interesting how a how a song or a a cultural moment can be so life-changing i was at ucla 
at Royce Hall when I was maybe 18. And I heard Nina Simone for the first time. Mm. And I was one of very few light-skinned people in the audience. And it was the time of Black Panthers and Angela Davis. And there was a lot of energy and rage and focus. And little farm girl me sitting there just changed (laughs) everything right there. So I think it's wonderful to look back at those transformational moments. And thank you for sharing that one with me. Oh, thank you. So let's start at the beginning. You're one of four siblings who grew up on a ranch in Northern California, three of whom ended up with careers in the arts. So I'm just curious, what was it about your life growing up that you think made it so conducive to creativity? Well, it was before the internet. It was before cell phones. We didn't have a television, except when we went to school. When there was not school going on, we were not near any kids. We didn't have a block to ride the bicycle around with. There really weren't other distractions other than work and self-entertainment. And because we all were born with a certain amount of, I guess one could say talent, they hadn't developed it into skill yet. We oftentimes would put on shows at night and entertain each other and entertain our parents. My mom created a big costume box with old clothes of hers that she brought from her previous life. But perhaps the most important was that nobody in the adult world in our life, mainly my parents, said, shut up. Mm. Nobody said, be quiet. Nobody said, take that racket outside. It was a home of permission to be expressive and to be creative. I don't remember ever being laughed at. I didn't know that wasn't true for everybody until I talked to other friends who, if they came over to visit, were astounded. (laughs) And I was at a friend's house, I guess we were maybe 10, and I was doing a sleepover at her house, and I started singing, just something I would do, not a performance, just singing, and she went, shh, my brother's home. Mm. Well, that's interesting. You know, my little brain going, what on earth does this have to do with that? (laughs) No, but I pretty much learned eventually that not everybody came into the kitchen singing how their day went. So your voices were welcomed in your home. That's important. And ideas, you know, I don't think we were, I guess if one of us had shown up to be a clan member or something like that, but my parents were progressive thinkers. We were told what racist words we were not allowed to use and why we were not allowed to point guns at people, even though there were guns on the ranch, even in play, even with just a finger. No, 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 we don't. So these kind of concepts were instilled in a very simple way that didn't carry anger and hostility with it. It wasn't punishment. It was just them trying to impress upon us how one lives when one wants to live with integrity, I guess, although they would never have used those big words. Yeah. Well, you began your career acting in Hollywood movies and then appeared in Hair on Broadway. But Your work and life took a major turn when you joined Jane Fonda's Free the Army Tour, performing anti-Vietnam War material for the troops. And I'm wondering what happened during that period that transformed you and your path from someone who was dreaming of a career as an actor, singer on Broadway and Hollywood into someone whose life and work were devoted to social change and political change through the arts. My sister and I were living in Hollywood together, and we heard about this organization called the Entertainment Industry for Peace and Justice. And most people by that time 
what was it, 1970 maybe, who had progressive politics or were conscious in any way, were opposed to the war. But there were people in Hollywood who kind of wanted to figure out, well, how should we as artists, because art is so influential, respond as a community? But there wasn't very strong leadership in that organization. So things very quickly went downhill with people interrupting each other. And and also that everybody was so unemployed and so desperate to work that if the idea came up to do something that was opposing the war, it was a very mixed bag for people because on one hand, they wanted to do something good with their art. And on the other hand, they also just wanted to work. So we kind of, my sister and I faded back from that. We did things like she and I and another musician went and sang in prisons. We tried to find ways to do things. And then a friend of mine, I was having lunch with him. He had been a choreographer at UCLA that I'd met, African-American man. And he and I were having lunch and he said, you know, we've often talked about wanting to do good things with our talent. And he said, I've heard that there is a space that's opened up in this show that is a troupe that is traveling around. At the time, they were traveling around the U.S. And they're performing works that are written by soldiers or that come from the writing of soldiers who, having come home, are opposed to the war, having seen what was going on there firsthand, are writing these things. It's a a program of sketches and songs. And what a woman had to drop out why don't you go audition? So I did. And I walked in and I didn't really know too much about it. I knew Jane was associated, but I didn't, I didn't know in what way. And Donald Sutherland and various other people. So I walked in, it turned out to be at a big house and everybody was very, very busy collating leaflets and applying for passports and ordering long underwear and all this kind of stuff. And they just put me to work because uh, Jane was not available to do the audition yet. So I just started working. And when it was time, she came in and said, okay, sorry to keep you waiting. Um, Come on in. We're having a little lunch break. Um, She talked to me for a little while about what I thought about the war. She asked me to sing a song and she asked me to do some dance steps and a little one of the sketches. And she said, great. Okay. We're leaving on (laughs) December, whatever, to go to New York to do a big fundraiser at, um, I think it was at Philharmonic Hall with Nina Simone being the star invited to be with us. And I went, there's something about all of this that is making a lot of sense to me. I called my dad and I said, I've been invited to do this tour. We're going to the Philippines where there's martial law. I guess I could get killed. (laughs) We're not going with the permission of the U.S. military. And he said, well, you have to understand my father drank. And he got into quite a mood when he was drinking, always very dreamy and lovey, never the violent kind. But he said, well, you could walk outside your house and get hit by a garbage truck too. So you may as well go live and have some fun. (laughs) Now, I don't advise all parents to say that to children. I understood what he meant is that if we don't say yes in our lives, we might miss a really great opportunity. So I hooked up with what was called Free the Army, FTA. The soldiers called it something else. And um, it was like going to a major world university. In six weeks, I learned more about how the military industrial complex worked, about how imperialism worked, about how racism had, how the country, I mean, a whole different way of looking at everything, including women, because I was not a feminist. I didn't quite know what that was. I was a strong, independent woman, but I didn't have a name for it. And these women in the uh, 
on the FTA tour were all very tough. And then we met women in the countries we traveled to, Hawaii, Okinawa, Japan, Philippines, all the women who were resisting the U.S. occupation in their countries. So six weeks, boom, 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 you know, and I came back and (laughs) and I started writing songs because one of the problems I'd had on the tour was that I didn't really have any material to sing. I was given two songs by Beverly Grant. One was called I'm Tired of Fuckers Fucking Over Me. And the other one was called I Can't Be Yours and Still Be Me. Hello. I had to sing those words, <laughs> try to figure out what they meant as I went along. So when I got back, I thought, I got nothing in my toolbox. I have songs from musical theater. <laughs> I've got a few anti-war songs that are from a man's perspective. So I began to write. Why do we call them the enemy? This struggling nation we've been bombing across the sea. Wow. Oh, that was a uh, long answer. I'm so sorry. No, that's great. I never knew that. So that really kicked off your songwriting. It was like, well, I need more to sing. Yep. And I realized that I never if possible, wanted to be standing in a situation without material, without an appropriate way to respond to the situation. Well, that's just a lie. One of the many, and we've had plenty. I don't want more of the same. No more genocide in my name. Of course, it took years to create that toolbox. It didn't happen quickly, but even today I'll show up somewhere and I go, oh, don't have a song about that. <laughs> you know, just because what, what's been brought to the political scene from the Me Too movement and from Black Lives Matter and from the new environmental perspectives and stuff, I just haven't kept up. But there are other songwriters who have, and it's great. Well, that's interesting. So the tour, the whole experience sounded like it galvanized your political self, the feminist self in particular. And you never really went back to pursuing the Broadway Hollywood dream. Well, I tried a few things. I still tried to get a record contract. I did a few TV things after I came back. And I was in the film Slaughterhouse-Five. Oh, yes. Great film. Mm -hmm. But to me, the real theater was out there in the world. And I wasn't quite ready. You know, so often when you're an, an actor, you have to be so ready with your ability to find a character in the same way I was just earlier talking about having a song. And it takes a lot of study and craft to do it well. There are people that slip in and they get the audition because they look great. But the real, the actors who survive as great actors have this amazing craft. And I think I wasn't quite ready to embrace that work at the level at which I would expect of myself. I have very high expectations. I knew it would be a, a lifetime of work. I had learned a lot from my older sister who had gone into theater. Like the first film I did, terrible film. She was watching off, off the set to the scene. And she, during a break, called me over and she said, don't tell your director I'm advising you because he'll kick me off the set. <laughs> Which is true. But she said, don't try to be so pretty. Pretty isn't very interesting. Mm. Like, boom, you know. She said, let the human frailties show and it was early on in the film so that was a really helpful note yeah 
I'd like to talk a bit about your songwriting process. Going back to that, how does a song generally begin for you? And then what does the process look like going forward? Well, one of my great songwriting partners was Jeff Langley. We went to high school together and he played the piano. And had he played a guitar, my songs would all sound very different. Or had I played a guitar, I could strum it a little bit, but I wasn't good enough really to perform once I got out of high school. I mean, I played for high school stuff. And because Jeff played the piano, my songwriting went towards that style of music. And because he was such a spectacular musician, he went on to teach at Juilliard and he's an amazing classical composer. And the songs are complex. They're way more than the three chords that I would have been doing had I been writing songs on the guitar. Coffee smells good, give me breakfast for starters And there is a friend he calls to greet me And right there, his mysterious stranger Dark eyes and blue ones A big part of the songwriting came from that starting point. I did mainly the melody and the lyrics with him. So he would write a piece with me there or not. And then I would start to hear the changes that he was doing and I would find the melody and the words kind of at the same time so that they seemed to have a hand and glove relationship to each other, that I didn't have to force a word into a melody because I, I was developing it at the same time. After Jeff and I, stopped doing so much songwriting, he went on to work at Juilliard, and I got more involved in working with women and in the lesbian community, which he, by the way, was very supportive of. I know some people thought we'd had a big fight or something. <laughs> now, <laughs> Jeff and I love each other, and we've never had a big fight. But I, I think when I was writing on my own, all of a sudden, I started writing on the keyboard. Not as complex as Jeff necessarily, but if I had a melody that went somewhere and I couldn't find the chord, I was wise enough when I started the performance of the song to work with the pianist, the accompanist I was working on saying, I've just put a boring chord in here because I can't find the interesting one, but this is what I hear. And I would kind of sing the sound I wanted and they had the skill to know what notes to play. Cause I never studied harmony and theory and I, Regret that. Anybody who's listening to this who's a, a musician should really buckle down and, and learn harmony and theory if you want. It just makes it so much easier. And if you write all your songs with three chords, they're all going to sound like three chord songs. That's just the way it is. And if one is satisfied with that, great. The other thing is to use a, um, a dictionary, you know, a rhyming dictionary. A, what is it called? A thesaurus, you know, to come up with other words, to get outside of one's limited vocabulary and look at all the words that mean this same kind of thing. It's a wonderful skill to learn to songwrite. Now that doesn't mean you can't write a song with three chords. I mean, I, I'd been asked to write something for the first anniversary after the students at Kent State were killed. And I kept trying and trying. Everything I was writing was just so bad. so rhetorical. So, oh yeah, yeah. I'm on the plane. I'm going, what am I going to do here? I'm about to land in Ohio and I still don't have this damn song. One of the injured students had invited me and asked me to write the song. You know, it wasn't a throwaway. So, all right. Why can't I get this to come out right? I have to make it more personal. So think about the students. Think about the yard. Think about the war. One of these students, it could have been me. 
I'll be a student of life, a singer of songs, a farmer of food, and the writer of wrong. It could have been me, but instead it was you. And it may be me, dear sisters and brothers, before we are through. But if you can die for freedom, 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 if you can die for freedom, I can too. Were you panicking at that point as it was getting closer or did you have yeah. it? <laughs> I, I was kind of hoping there'd be a storm and we'd get moved over to a different <laughs> state or something. You know, like Judy Collins was going to be there and Jane Fonda was going to be there. It was a big deal, you know. It was wow. So it sounds like with Jeff, the music came first. When you're beginning a song on your own, are you starting from an idea like, okay, I have to write it for this event, like in that case, or is it like an image or something personal is welling up and it's like, oh, I have to write a song about this? Or is it all different ways all the time? I think it's different ways. But if I have to write on demand, which is not my favorite, like there was a huge demonstration women were putting on in Los Angeles after these professional sex workers, which many people call prostitutes, were being killed by a mass maniac. And so there was a big gathering and they had women on stilts way up there with these long, long black gowns that went to the ground. And there were one for each of the women who had died. And then there was one other woman who was in all red. So she was the rage and the resistance and the whatever. So I was supposed to write a song for this gathering. And I think the pressure of that made me get to it. I don't like the pressure, but it actually can nudge me. And I ended up writing the song Fight Back. And so we gotta fight back in large numbers. Fight back. I can't make it alone. Fight back in large numbers. Together we can make a safe home. Together we can make a safe home. And that ended up being a song that lasted for a long time. So both those songs were on request and under pressure, and they they turned out okay. And they're both singable, you know, which is a good thing to have if you're doing something for a rally, is to keep coming back to that chorus. And in the case of It Could Have Been Me, people have written verses to that now for the last 40 years or however long it's been since Kent State. And they just write it based on their own whatever has happened in crisis in their own place, as long as after they finish the verse, it comes back around to, it could have been me, but instead it was you. You know, it has to fit into that concept. But to me, that's a real workhorse of a song. If you can write a song that people can add their own verses to, and it just keeps coming back to some universal concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes for a good song. There's other songs that, you know, you save to sing at Carnegie Hall, you know, <laughs> they're real uh, <laughs> works of great musicality and um, they wouldn't work on the back of a truck with a megaphone, you know, uh, songs have different reasons for existing. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a regular creative routine where you're every day getting up and writing or is it more sporadic than that? I'm so undisciplined when it comes to rehearsal, for writing, any of those things. I just, I don't like to practice. 
Ronnie Gilbert used to get so upset with me because she preferred the rehearsal more than the performance. <laughs> I liked the performance. <laughs> I thought, all right, we've been there, done that. We know this song. Let's get on with it. And uh, I just have no discipline in those formal kind of ways. Mm-hmm. However, I keep my voice in shape without vocalizing in a formal way. And I keep my songwriting standards up to, I mean, I have very, like I said before, high expectations of myself, but I, I don't really come to that level of craft or presentation through formal methods. I'm totally unruly and unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> in so many ways. Oh, dear. Well, you mentioned the collaboration. My next question was about collaboration because you collaborated with such a range of artists from Inti Iamani, Ronnie Gilbert, John Bucchino, and more recently, Emma's Revolution. And can you talk a bit about the joys and challenges of collaboration, especially if it's cross-cultural or cross-generational? I don't think everybody collaborates the same way, but for me, a collaboration is like doing coalition work. First mm-hmm. of all, if it's easy, you're not doing coalition work. <laughs> <laughs> And second, it's uh, trying to find some mutual playing field that isn't all mine and isn't all yours. Unless I say to myself, I'm going to collaborate with this person, but I'm going to be the silent party. I'm going to go with them. We'll be all on their playing field and I'll just pipe in when I feel like I have something to contribute. I try to decide pretty much before that collaboration begins how that's going to work. And the, the times that I've collaborated with people where I didn't have that clear have been pretty much a disaster. Hmm. Working with Ronnie, I mean, what was lovely about working with her early on, she was younger than me when we first started working together. You know, I'm in my 70s now, but I think she must have been in her 50s when we started or something. Anyway, she was such a big singer, such a big singer that I didn't have to use any reservation when we were performing together. I could be as big as I wanted to be and she'd still be bigger than me. Because I'd collaborated and performed with people like Meg Christian, who I adored. I was in a relationship with her for a while, and I loved her dearly, and I thought she was one of the finest guitar players that had come through the mm-hmm. women's movement. And, but she was a small person, and she had a small voice, and she jam-packed into that small package an incredible amount of power and humor. She was very funny. But she had a small playing field from which she exploded. So I, in that collaboration, had to come into that smaller playing field, which was good practice for me. But working with Ronnie, it was great to get back to that Broadway belting kind of sound. I remember I was working with Sandy O from Emma's Revolution. She was at a performance workshop I did. She, because she's in a folk duo, and one of whom plays the guitar, the other one, Pat, she just didn't quite know how to bring her full energy to it without creating an imbalance. And I said, well, I think you standing still is the imbalance. Why don't you try doing something with your arms or your face or your body that is the equivalent of playing a guitar? You know, make your body the instrument. Try just doing this. Try just going, (laughs) ta-da! She went, oh my God, that felt so good. (laughs) It does feel really good to let your 
body, but sometimes we we just grow up sort of in a cultural identity, especially in folk music, where you you don't see that sort of explosion that much. So now if you go see Emma's Revolution, you'll definitely see Sandy. She'll be using her body and it's lovely. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I, I recently reread your memoir, Fire in the Rain, Singer in the Storm, which came out in 1990. And you talked about a process of preparing yourself to sing that involves your entire body. Can you describe what that's like? And has that changed over the years? I always get a little horrified when someone brings up that book because I haven't read it in what year did it come out? <laughs> 1990. <laughs> well, how many years away is that? I, I haven't read it since it was published, but I keep hearing from people that it holds up. I hope. Oh yeah, great. it's a great book. And I actually have a few more questions about it. So, okay. All right. <laughs> I will try to calm my discomfort then. So you're asking about that relationship between performance and body? Yeah. Yes. I will stand in the wings. I don't do a lot of preparation because I've been doing this for 50 years. If I were a beginner, I would advise people to do a lot more preparation. But when we get called to come to the wings for a concert, I'll be standing there with whoever the accompanist or the musicians at the time. And we just stand quiet with each other. It's not very ritualized. We don't get in a circle or hug each other or anything like that. It's just, we start to bring each other into each other's space. We just become unified by the air between us. And I'll do some breathing just to remind my body that it's supposed to take a massive amount of air for the next hour and a half. (laughs) It knows how, but I just sort of have to remind it. Okay, we're going to be doing some major breathing because to extend notes, to sing belty notes, to sing high notes, to sing little tiny notes, all takes air. And then I sort of say to myself, why are you here? You're here to be of service, to educate, to entertain, to challenge, to love. You know, these sort of things that I believe are part of what I I want to offer here to hope people will leave the hall feeling better than when they came in, that I don't get to control that. They are they, I am me. And then just sort of, since you don't really know who's in the audience, since you don't really know where they've been before they came in, how they're feeling, one can't really think about any of that. So I just say to myself, get out of your own way. And while I'm out there, I'm absolutely in the moment because that's where the information is. One can call it channeling or observation or sensitivity. But if I'm thinking backwards or forwards, I'm going to miss what's happening right in that vibrant moment. And it's a wonderful place to be. I don't always hit it. Sometimes I've walked off and said to John Bucchino, I've worked with for so many years. I just said, well, didn't land that one. (laughs) And he knows what I mean. Then we don't talk about it. We don't process it. Mm. we don't talk about how to improve it because it'll be completely different the next time. (laughs) (laughs) What I did in this moment, it doesn't really help for you to give me notes because I'm never coming back to this place again. A lot of crossover with meditation, right? Where you're trying to get your brain in this moment as opposed to thinking forward or backward. Yeah. They say that if you, if you hang out in the past, you're bound to run into regrets. And you can't fight with the past. The past will always win. That's the saying. But it's also that I find with regrets, 
of which I have many. How did I hear this put? A regret is like heroin. One is too many and a thousand is never enough. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like a drug. It's like alcohol. It's whatever. It's, it's you just shouldn't even pick up the first one. And, um, and the future, spending too much time in the future tends to lead to worry and out of place expectations. So being in the present is a pretty good place to be. Yep. <laughs> Agreed. Another thing you talk about in your memoir is how in 1975, when you started singing more about women's issues in particular, some men were upset and you would get letters after your concerts from men saying they felt excluded or hurt. You wrote a powerful response and I want to share a couple short excerpts. You wrote, when women confront sexism, you may feel it harsh. But sexism is harsh, and the power of it must be matched in our struggle against it. And then later you wrote, just as whites must protest racism and genocide without wanting approval from people of color, men must attack sexism and patriarchy without wanting approval from women. So that letter was 46 years ago, and yet it still feels so important from both a gender and race perspective. Do you ever marvel at the ongoing relevance of these same things you were writing about in the mid-70s? Mm. Well, there's sort of two sides to that. Do I marvel at the fact that I wrote something when I was very young that I still approve of? And do I marvel that there was a world condition that hasn't changed that much? Well, there have been changes. The work was not for naught. When I hear people say, well, we're still dealing with racism. Yeah, because we're human beings. Mm -hmm. We're really a messed up species. You can go all the way back into the 1600s or whatever, and there people were still gathering in the square to watch somebody be beheaded, you know, and enjoying it. We're just crazy. So what a dumb animal we can be sometimes. And on the other side of it, there's some extraordinary brilliance that can rise up in terms of people's kindness and compassion and creativity. I guess I just don't ever think that's going to change. I think that humans will be on that spectrum. And the important thing for me is to wake up every morning and decide where I am in that spectrum. Where do I want to stand? Where do I want to live? And to work out of a really profound desire to do good and to hang out with other people who are doing good and who have love and compassion and, and clean rage. There have been times in my life where I had really messy rage. Um, wasn't very helpful. Just usually hurt the people who were closest to me as opposed to who I was trying to protest. But clean, clean, pure rage is a wonderful thing that I hold dear. And there's a new generation that's coming along just as we came along. I mean, we had criticisms of the people from the 30s for not doing their job the way we wanted them to, but they couldn't. They only knew what they knew then. And in the process of their lives, they came to where they passed it off to us. And then we did what we could do with all these new pieces of information. And then now we're passing it on and the next generation's pissed that we didn't do better. Well, we did the best we could with what we had. And now it's the next generations to improve on that. Am I disappointed we didn't do everything right? You bet. I'm really sorry we didn't do better with the environment, with race, with class, with violence. Wouldn't have been nice if we just go, okay, got that done. You know, it didn't work like that. I don't know if it ever will. 
The main thing that comes along now is that we've so polluted our home that the planet, of course, will go on without us. It will have millions of years to recover. I think the last extinction was 65 million years ago, and it recovered and turned out to be a pretty beautiful planet in its recovery. And it will recover again. But we may not get to be part of it if we don't come up with some pretty incredible creative ideas pretty quickly. And I feel so heartbroken for young people who are having to deal with this. And it seems so massive. But I also try to remember how heartbroken people were during World War I and II and the Civil War as their young people went off to fight this war that was made up by rich people. Yeah. And what a heartbreak to see your your best and your brightest young men and then the women who were on all the support teams and the ambulance drivers in Spain and you know, it's just what went on in Vietnam and and before that the Civil War. It just it's just such a strange way to resolve problems. Okay, we're going to go out with a bunch of guns, and you're going to go out with a bunch of guns. We're all going to kill each other, and then we'll figure out at the end of that how we'll proceed. (laughs) Yeah. So towards the end of the book, you wrote, following in the footsteps of political revolution, industrial revolution, and cultural revolution, must there not eventually be a spiritual revolution? that is infused with a feminist, pragmatic, scientific, and economic understanding of oppression and nature. I wrote that? Yes. (laughs) March little girl she was. (laughs) So what do you think about that? What, if you had written that now, what would you mean by a spiritual revolution? And how do you see yourself in spiritual terms? Well, I'm going to steal for a moment, I hope she doesn't mind, from Ginny Burson, who was one of the founders of Olivia Records. And before that, she was part of a group that was called The Furies, thinking through and writing material about the role, the task, the job of radical lesbian separatist feminism. You know, how much did you have to separate from dominant culture in order to rethink how we want to behave without having that foot on the neck. Really an extraordinary writing. In fact, my father read some of the Furies and he said, wow, this is the best stuff I've read since Marx, you know? So she's a very smart woman. And she uh, she's one of these people that, Jenny is a, a person who feels like feminism without class, race, disability, consciousness is not feminism. You can't have feminism just for a little small group of people. Feminism has to hugely embrace the whole world of what it means to be a woman in a patriarchy. So. I heard her talk the other day. She's written a book. She says now she's working with people in Oakland around race equity and community. And she says the difference between those meetings and some of the ones she had in her early days in lesbian separatism is that everybody in this group has some form of spiritual practice. They don't all belong to the same church or mosque or temple or yoga class or whatever it is, they and they don't talk about it, but that everyone who's coming to do this race equity work has a spiritual place from which they come. And it makes the meetings and the work so much more fulfilling and wise. And it was wonderful to hear her speak about that. She said the person that she had been in the early days full of anger is not a person she would want to have at that meeting now. And so. Um, 
how wonderful that we're all capable of changing and myself as well. I was part of throwing my uh, messy anger around a lot of misunderstanding of what my job was at the time. But I'm interested to hear that I wrote that. It must have been something I was looking for. I don't have a spiritual practice, but I'm much more connected to nature now. In the same way I must have been as a child out on the ranch, but I went into the urban world and I lost some of that. So I'm much more aware of the fact that if I, so many people say, you know, when you're praying, you're talking to God, but when you're meditating, you're listening for the answer. I try to do more listening than demanding. I don't really have a, a God. I think that word has become a, a shortcut in conversations to try to not have to say, well, it's this, 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 and this, but call it a higher power. You can call it the wind and the trees, whatever you want to call it. But there is, in fact, in my belief, something bigger than me. And it's a good thing because if it was all left up to me, we'd be in big trouble. <laughs> you know? so I'm really glad that the moon rises without me having to get up and instruct it to. <laughs> What if I slept in or something, you know, and I didn't get to it. So there is this universe out there that functions and even our bodies. I mean, how odd that without really thinking about it, an idea turns into a word and comes out of my mouth. What is this mechanism? And it, it holds up. I mean, it's been lasting for, in my life, 72 years and it might go on longer. That's longer than a car lasts. You know, that's a pretty amazing machine. Yeah. I don't know. I think spirit is, in the biggest sense of the word, a great liberator because it lets us not become irresponsible, but it takes us out of that sense of being the fixer, of being all-knowing. Mm. And if people could avoid that all-knowing thing, then we wouldn't have kings and dictators. Well, I love hearing about that connection to nature because I think that's in a lot of your songs. I think of Water Come Down, which is one of my absolute favorites. For all the children in the pastures where the water flows, sunshine turning shirtless backs to brown. Oh, my daddy's hatted back to see all his kids go running. You have that line, makes me think there must have been something more than summer going on, that just evokes, I think, that incredible joy of children in nature. Power of water, which of course, at that time, I didn't realize that water would become the issue in California. Water is like magic, it makes a child feel small, the brave and true for centuries have followed when it seemed so abundant at the time. Rushing by a child who has never seen the sea Makes me think there must have been something more than summer going on In the documentary, Singing for Our Lives, which came out just a couple years ago, wonderful documentary of, about you and your life and work. You talk a little bit about the genesis of the song, We Are Open, We Are Willing, or I Am Willing. <laughs> Sorry, got that wrong. I, I don't know what it's called. <laughs> I am willing. Uh, connecting to how people, it seems like throughout your career, people have been trying to sort of 
put you in some kind of a box, like, well, what are you? Are you a socialist? Are you a pacifist? Are you bisexual? And that, and you said in the documentary, those words don't express the nature of the person I'm trying to be and how thinking about that led you to that song. Do you want to talk a little more about the nature of that person that you're trying to be? Mm, I have often wondered why we don't have better words for a person who tries to remain open and willing, but wants to investigate and be curious and not defensive, not locked in. I don't think we've, I don't know what those words are. Maybe the next generation will start to create them. But I think that for me, I went into the boxes myself before people decided to close the door on that box every time I went into one, because I was curious and interested and fascinated. And um, I don't function from fear very much. I don't know why exactly. So I wanted to go to the Philippines, even if I might die in martial law. And I, I wanted to sit and listen to someone who my ancestors had oppressed I wanted to sit and listen to someone whose ancestors had been slaughtered and hear what they had to say. I wanted to sit and listen to that. Not comfortable, not pleasant, but I wanted to know. want to know how we think and who we are and how we can change and I just I think it's interesting but other people sometimes out of their own maybe fear or lack of confidence in themselves will go oh yay she's now one of us because we are tribal human beings are very tribal and they want they want to know that you're on their team and it can be problematic. I mean, you can be on a team for a couple hours when you're playing softball on the weekend, but that's about as much teamwork as we should get too committed to because otherwise we miss the opportunity to see who might be standing just on the other side of that team that we'd like to get to know. I think what you're referring the most to probably was the lesbian community. When I came out, the anti-war community, the peace community that I'd been working with, this was in the mid-70s, those organizations had not come up to speed around feminism and gender issues. So they thought, oh my God, Holly's gone off the rails. She's come out. Why did she go have a girlfriend or something? But why did you come out? I could see in the audience, a lot of people stopped coming from that community. But oh boy, did a lot of women show up all of a sudden, you know, it was just like there was a shift in the appearance of that audience and the perspective. And I thought, okay, well, this is what happened. And after about a dozen years or so, I can't remember the timing of it, I ended up having relationships with men again. And I actually kept it kind of a secret because I had no interest in promoting heterosexuality. I just happened to have these relationships and we weren't quite there yet. And I knew that if it got public, that a lot of people who were still homophobic would grab it and say, see, Holly changed her mind. She regrets having been part of that other thing. And they would have defined that narrative for me. So I decided to just keep it quiet, but it, it leaked out anyway. And fortunately, it didn't become too big of a deal 
until Katie Lang and Melissa Etheridge and Ellen DeGeneres, Tracy Chapman, how they all showed up. And once it was more than a handful of public people who were out, they didn't need me anymore in that way. It was like I was freed up. <laughs> and so <laughs> there was still a lack of trust on the part of the lesbian community because there's historically a reason to fear that women come in and dabble with lesbianism and then go back to the safety of heterosexuality. So it just was going to take some time for that fear and that rage to settle when they saw that I wasn't going anywhere, that my politics are my politics. And someone said, why do you still sing lesbian songs? And I said, well, why do I sing songs about women with children? I don't have any kids, don't intend to, you know, why do I sing mountain song? I'm not from Appalachia. So it took some time to ask the back the questions, you know, why are you? And even a few years ago, I did a workshop at a women's living community and about women's music and the history of it and all that. In the end, there was a Q&A and we were about to wrap it up. And one woman said, well, I just have to ask. And my first response was, no, you don't. <laughs> you really don't. <laughs> you really don't have to ask. But I said, okay, what do you have to ask? And she said, well, are you or aren't you? <laughs> and I just thought, wow, all this work I've done to try to enlarge the conversation, you know, I thought I'd done such a good job. Nah, zip. No, it didn't work at all. <laughs> so uh, I said to her, I am not in a relationship with anybody. I'm not having sex with anybody. I can't even imagine having sex with anybody. <laughs> I'm not at all interested in sex with anybody. That's what you're asking. No. I'm not an are you or an aren't you? I'm just a not, you know. But I said, if you're asking me to identify, I said the only thing when it comes to sexuality and relationships and gender that I can identify as is that I'm monogamous. And that's as much as I can commit to. I don't think she was happy with the answer, but <laughs> so then I sang, I am open, I'm willing, and that was the end of the event. But <laughs> that's I don't know. I mean, we do have to come out. There was a reason to come out. There was a reason to come out strong and furious. And there still is, because if you're coming out about something where women were having their brains chopped open and being given lobotomies and they were being kicked out of their families and they were not getting equal pay and had to wear dresses when they really were more comfortable in pants or couldn't take their partner to the holiday party at the office. But most of all, were being beaten and killed and humiliated in the gay men's community too. So as long as that's going on, we have to come out. It's not soft business. That's tough stuff. And if I'm in a situation where my impact will be greater by identifying as a lesbian while talking to the hostile community, I'll do that. I don't care who I'm sleeping with. It's not the point. Right. Yeah. Point. So what do you do when you feel despair at the state of the world? And what gives you hope? I feel despair at the world most of the time. So I can't let it get me down. Otherwise, I would just be immobilized. I think it's a dangerous place on this planet. And um, my everyday danger is so much less than most people's everyday danger. I'm not in Syria. You know, I'm not in prison. I'm not in a violent relationship. I'm not hungry. I'm not caring for a severely disabled child. My life's pretty easy. I have social security. I'm retired, have Medicare. That puts me probably in the top 3% in the world. 
Now we get angry at the top 1%, but a lot of us are in the top 3%. It's all kind of relative. So my level of despair is in some ways theoretical. Mm -hmm. It's in being willing to notice what a shithole it is in a lot of places in the world and in a lot of people's lives. But then I'll be walking down the street and I'll see some little five-year-old just being so in love with life and with a stick or with a rock or with a flower or, you know, tugging on her mommy or daddy's shirt and little things like that make me very happy. Hmm. Yeah. In the documentary, you say we are the elders now. And you talked about participating in legacy circles. I was curious, what do you think are the gifts and responsibilities of being an elder? What does that mean to you? And also, what is a legacy circle? I've been in legacy circles in the sense that we're not necessarily all sitting in a circle, but we are come together for a few days to talk about what we did, what worked, what didn't. Very non-abusive self-criticism because it's in the past and we can look at it with a certain amount of detachment, figuring out how can we leave a trail of that knowledge. Can't enforce it on anybody, but we can leave a trail so it can be found if and when it's necessary. As an elder, I mainly keep my mouth shut when I'm around young people, or I try to, and listen. And I figure that when they're ready, they'll either find the trail or they'll come talk to one of us, But when I was 20, I wasn't ready to be lectured to by my elders. Hmm. Now, if you lived in a tribal world, I'm not speaking for that lifestyle, that culture, because I do think elders play a very different role. Say, I grew up with the Pomo Nation, and I have a feeling that the relationship within that tribal life around elders is really different than the one I live with. And I think in the Black community, the grandmothers were so important to help keep an eye on the kids and so many children come back to live with their grandparents either their parents have died or their parents are working two jobs I don't want to be culturally insensitive to the fact that we all think about being elders differently but I don't have children and so mainly I'm just kind of here when my nieces and nephews are interested they find their way to me they call up their auntie and I have quite a few lesbian friends who have daughters raised them as single moms. And those girls and, and boys call me auntie. So what that means is that the door is open. Hmm. Are there young artists that you particularly admire that you feel are taking up the mantle? Yeah, I do. I don't want to begin the list because it's long and you leave somebody out, but I'm very happy that all my nieces and nephews, well, four out of the five, have come into working with art and creativity. So it's fun to watch them make their way. And they want to do it really differently than me and my sisters did. I mean, they're not following in our footsteps at all. <laughs> so that's really fun. Um, she's not a youngster anymore, but I really like the music of Chris Matthews. Have you had a chance to hear her? I don't know her, no. She's from the Washington, D.C. area. And, and look her up. It's C-R-Y-S. Is how she spells her name? Matthews. She's doing some really great global political work, community work, and gender work. 
all the, the issues and the isms get wound into her songs in one way or the other. She's really quite wonderful. And I'm glad I've met her and that we've had a chance to work together. So I keep an eye on the music that she's putting out. And there's a woman she works with, whose name is Heather May. And Heather's kind of gone in, a, they've worked together, but she's gone in a direction of really trying to figure out what it means to be an ally around issues of race. She's white. And she's so vulnerable about it. She's really putting it on the table where she makes mistakes and what she's learned from Chris when they're touring. And she's also, I was interviewing her and I asked what can of worms was she opening that my generation sort of neglected? You know, we did our bits, but we didn't do everything. And she's in mental health Mm. that she's bipolar and a lot of people in her generation are committing suicide. So she takes that on big time on stage and with her songs. She's also what she describes as a fat woman. And so she's taking on a lot of the issues too about body shaming. So those are two examples. There are dozens. This idea that there isn't a next generation of social change artists is only because we as older people aren't bothering to go find them. But when I was 20 and was practicing in a garage, somebody in their 50s might have been, well, where's the next Joan Baez or Pete Seeger or Odetta or whatever? Well, we were there. You didn't know about us yet. So that's how I think about it now that these young artists that are developing and they're putting together perspectives and their experience and they're practicing with each other. And if we pay attention, we'll find them. One last question. Are there projects that you are currently working on and excited about going forward that you'd like to share? I am. It's been a great project to do during COVID and also in semi-retirement because I'm not really singing that much anymore. That doesn't mean I won't again, but I'm not doing that daily practice to keep my voice up to speed or a repertoire. I toured for 50 years and whatever it was that kept Pete Seeger driven to keep going, I I don't have that. And, uh, you know, bless him. But I really came to a time when I turned 70 that I thought 50 years was a good amount of time and that I wanted to go see what else was going on in the world. And um, then COVID hit. So I've sort of been not going out to see what else is going on in the world. But from home, starting in 2019, which was before COVID, I began interviewing women predominantly women of color from the Oakland, California area and the greater Bay Area about women's music because the narrative about women's music has in its most shallow form focuses on predominantly white women soloists with guitar or piano. And my understanding of women's music is a much bigger picture than that. So I decided to start interviewing people and let them tell their own story rather than me talking about them. So I've become an interviewer, just like you. (laughs) Uh, And it's been great to figure out what are the questions that lead someone into a really deep response? And how do you sit quiet, as you were doing, and actually listen to the answers? I've interviewed now, I think, 17 people. And it's all going to live on a website that it's set up like an art gallery. There's the opening room with the four featured people, and then there's a conversation room with all the other interviews. There's a listening room. And then there's a reading room where there's listed some things that are about women's music that have been written and films made. So it's really sort of an elaborate version of leaving a trail. 
And I, I'm really happy all of these women are telling their own stories and that I've been able to facilitate that. And that's a really nice job for someone like me after all these years to just be able to create a space. Made me very happy and so moved. I mean, I knew quite a bit about each of these people, but not, not nearly enough. Wow. Well, I had no idea. That is so exciting. It is, yeah. (laughs) When when does that launch? Oh, yeah, yeah. I keep keep hoping tomorrow. No, (laughs) I said to some of the friends working on it with me, I said, at least let's get this done before I die. But it's actually closer than that. We should have it done by the end of the year and then have some people review it, probably launch it hopefully in February. Great. Would that just be linked through your website, hollynear.com, or would it have? Yeah, you could be able to find it at Goldenrod Music, our big distribution of feminist music. It'll be at Schlesinger Library, where my papers are at Radcliffe. I'd like to have Oakland Library have it. I mean, in this internet world, it's out there, but these are institutions that could make it findable. So we'll see. I'd like it to, to live at places where it makes it accessible. Beautiful. Can't wait. Uh, it's yeah it's it's good it's it's good yeah very excited about it well thank you so much holly i feel like i could have easily another hour's worth of questions but it's just been <laughs> such a pleasure <laughs> thank you tanya i i'm very happy that you called and uh yeah when you've done something for at least 50 if not 70 years you can't sort of squeeze it all into an hour but this has been really fun and thank you for listening to awfully Arts conversations on creativity I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. You can find past interviews on our website at offleashearts.com. And please join us next time when I'll be speaking with visual artist Marjorie Morgan. Until then, take good care and stay off leash. Mm-hmm.